0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today we're going to read from Exodus 16, 4-8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven, for you and all the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because you have heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we, that you grumble? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Hey there, I'm
0: glad to see you all this morning. Glad to be here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Bing Davis. Two groups, two churches. Is this a, is this, are we gonna have a contest later? Okay, I'm betting on this group, okay? They're a little bit bigger. Um, my name is Bing Davis and I, we go to church here, Stacy and I do, been here for over three years. I'm also a pastor in this denomination, and what we call a teaching elder uh, in this denomination. And Stacy asked for me to preach for them today since they're out of town, which I appreciate. Usually, as you know, someone comes in from the mothership out on uh, Old Higley Boulevard, uh, but uh, I was uh, delighted to be asked. To be with y'all today, I'm excited about this passage. It's just one that we all know or have known, it seems, about since we were children, right? I mean, this is probably one of the earliest passages you learned about, and and, and so forth and so on. And and it's a it's a it's a it's a good passage. Uh, they all are. Now, I'm going to bear my soul here to you for just a minute, um, and I want to ask you a question: Are there any places in Scripture? that sort of bother you or bump up against you when you read them because of what it does the inside and in your mind? Now, let me stop and say that reading Scripture is always a blessing. Whether we fully understand it or whether we fully grasp what it's trying to say, um, there's a blessing there for us just in the presence of Scripture in our hearts and in our minds. Yet, I have one passage that always kind of slightly bumps up against me and I'm not really in some strange place, and every time I read it, I think, how does this work out daily? How, does, how far does this really go? And yet there it is, day after day, week after week, month after month. You get it. It's always there. It's Scripture. And the passage is this. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapter 6 of Matthew, and here it is. It's, it's Matthew six twenty five and then 31 through 34. It says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why does that bump up against me, you think? Why does it—I just want to know how far that really goes. I I am showing a mixture of arrogance and, and unworthiness when I do that. These are the words of Jesus. His words, His promise to me, it's us. And yet, I often wonder about them. Why? Because I somehow seem to think that God— really won't tend to even down to what I eat, drink, or wear. Why should a person of all sorts of privilege like me uh, even need, much less deserve, that sort of attention? Part of it is arrogance in me, and part of it's a sense of unworthiness, and part of it's just plain old disbelief. When I realize that I'm feeling that way, I remember the father in, in, in Mark chapter nine who has come to Jesus and asked him to cast a spirit out of his son. The spirit has even tried to kill the child several times by throwing him into fire or throwing him into water or something like that. And when Jesus looks at the father and questions why he needs this or why he wants this, the father cries out, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Which is exactly how I feel when I read the passage that I just read to you. And yet we have this example before us in the passage we're looking at today. As you know, we're spending time looking at the life of Moses. I gotta do something here. As you know, we're spending time looking at the life of Moses, and we followed Moses into his final 40, uh, in the sense that his life is roughly broken up into three 40-year segments. Um, Forty years of being raised as a prince of Egypt, 40 years as a shepherd, and now his final 40 years as God's appointed deliverer of his people from Egypt, and back to the land. Uh, that God had declared was theirs, the, the, belonged to the people, the children of Israel, through Abraham many years before, many, many. At this point, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. They've escaped, escaped the clutch of the Egyptians, and they've even seen Pharaoh and his army completely swallowed up in the Red Sea and done away with. It says in one part of Scripture that Pharaoh washed up on the shore For them to see that he was dead and gone. We're a few weeks down the line from that now. And the very first, right before this passage in Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, we see that this is, when this happens, it's on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So we're what? Maybe five weeks, six weeks down the road from the complete destruction A pharaoh and the Egyptian army at the hands of God, miraculously at the hands of God. And after that incredible delivery, the people have already started griping about their situation. They state that they would rather have died with full bellies in Egypt in captivity than than to have been set free uh, at the hand of God. There's a quote from one of the commentators on this passage that I think is just a real gem when he talks about discontent, which is what the Israelites were suffering from. What they had just wasn't good enough for them. They had been released after hundreds of years of bondage. And it just wasn't good enough. They accused Moses and his brother Aaron of taking them out into the desert to kill them where Pharaoh hadn't all those years. And the quote is this, discontent magnifies what is past and vilifies what is present without regard to truth or reason. I like it so much I'm going to read it again. Discontent magnifies what is past and vilifies what is present without regard to truth or reason. In other words, they wanted to say, oh, just six weeks ago back in Egypt, at least we were able to sit next to what in scriptures call flesh pots, meaning where they were cooking meat to eat. And now you've brought us out here to kill us. The Egyptians were great to us compared to what you're doing. Why didn't we just stay there where we had full bellies? So it's magnifying the past, vilifying the present, which is being led by the actual hand of God, the presence of God in a cloud of fire or a a pillar of clouds. A pillar of fire or a pillar of clouds. They're being led by God himself. They're being led— in an earthly sense by his appointed deliverer, Moses. And yet, they're magnifying what is past and vilifying what is present without regard to truth or reason. The grumbling of the people of Israel is described in several times in Scripture itself, but one of the ones I really like is in Psalm 106, verses 7 through 13. And it says this, Our fathers when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Pause just a moment there. Do you hear what that said? He saved them for his name's sake. He didn't save them for their sake. He saved them for his name's sake, that the news of what he had done would go out and people would know Almighty God because of what he did for his people. So he didn't save them for their sake, he saved them for his own sake. They were the benefit, they were the benefactor, uh, they received the benefits of his greatness and gloriousness and the fact that he wanted to show the world who he was and he has every right to do so. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. And these last four lines, then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works and did not wait for his counsel. Five or six short weeks down the road from complete destruction of the people who had held them in captivity for hundreds of years. And they have forgotten his works and did not wait for his counsel. That's a, that's a real picture of discontent. It's a real picture of people that say, but what are you doing for me now? Now? Not what did you do for me then? Not what have you promised to do for me in the future? What are you doing for me right now? Right this moment? What have you done for me? And God in his heaven is looking down and going, I can't believe these guys. But he knew them. So he knew exactly what they were going to do. The Israelites in verse 3 actually accused Moses and Aaron, their deliverer, of bringing them into the desert to kill them. How ungrateful and forgetful... The children of God can be then and now. One quick mention of something. In verse 8, we see a reference to receiving, quote, meat in the evening and bread in the morning. And that brings up two interesting points. Number one, as you've heard before, Israel, or the Hebrews in that time, and a significant portion of the Middle East, saw the day as starting at sundown and then ending the next sundown. So when— He says, I'm going to give you meat in the evening and bread in the morning, as he phrases it that way. He's phrasing the Hebrew day, starting with evening, which is when the quail would come and they could trap them into the morning when they would pick up the manna, okay? So that's how the Hebrew day worked, from evening to morning. Um, The second thing... Uh, that he is 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 pointing out here is that he's not only giving them manna we find just a few verses after this passage that he gives them what's known as quail in the evening now I don't know that they're the same quail that we see coveys of around here but they are a small bird that was native to the area and when they came in in the afternoons and evenings to eat they would settle down on the ground and find whatever was there and they were very easy to trap in snares during that time and so he had them come in by flocks and the people could just trap the birds that they needed and eat them and so they got meat in the evening and bread in the morning and God provided all of that the manna the birds came in at his direction but they were also natural to the area but the manna is provisioned directly from God's hand. And as it is called in the first verse of this passage, verse four, it's called bread from heaven. And I can't think of a more glorious term for that manna, <coughs> or for what we even receive from God day by day now. Apparently the children of Israel had gone into the desert and had finally run out of any provision they might've brought with them out of Egypt. Uh, they're hungry and rebellious and forgetful of what God has done for them as recently as six weeks prior. The passage starts with Moses being told by God that he is what he is going to fully provide for these angry and rebellious people. He intends to provide for them fully and give them a fresh provision daily, a fresh supply every day. This went on for the entire 40 years in the desert. The people being reminded daily that God alone provides for their needs that's it the need that they had was food to sustain them now they may have had wants beyond that but the need they had was food for provision so they could survive to bring the glory to God okay you see the difference between needs and wants they needed the food they wanted other things like comfort They wanted other things like to be back in their own homes, even it meant being back in Egypt. And even though they were walking toward the land, God had given them as a people hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years. They wanted some things, but they needed the daily provision of manna and meat so that they could survive to bring glory to God. After God tells Moses what he's going to do, after he says, I'm going to give them meat in the evening and bread in the morning, and he describes the bread. At one place uh, in Exodus, the bread, uh, the manna is described, and it tasted like sweet, like honey. Uh, It tasted so good. And, And being from the South and being old, I immediately start thinking of a honey bun. You know what I mean? Does anybody know what a honey bun is? Those things you can get like in a gas station. You know what I mean? Or something like that. I know it wasn't a honey bun, but I'm an old Southern guy. So I think honey bun. Okay. They say, they say it tastes like honey. So why not? At any rate, he gives them this beautiful bread every morning, but he says something to Moses to tell the people that we see over and over again, uh, God do in scripture. He intends to see how well his people will obey them by giving him them these rules. Now, this is not a trap that God is setting up. He's not gonna say, I'm gonna give them all these rules. I'll bet they fall out of my favor again now. He is setting this up as a demonstration of two things, who he is and who we are and how broad the gap is between the two, okay? It's not a trap. It's a demonstration. It's a demonstration... Eventually, of his overwhelming love and grace and mercy. But right now, he sets up strict rules, as you can see in this passage, for the gathering of manna. You can only gather what you need for the day for each person in your, in your household. You can only gather uh, in the morning. It's not going to last all day. You go out early uh, to get what you need for that day. And that's all you get, is what you need for that day. And so what's the first thing that happened? Families and individuals went out and gathered enough to last for two or three days or a week or whatever. They weren't supposed to store the manna up. Can you imagine why? They weren't supposed to store it up because God. they had to show trust that God would provide it on a daily basis. That was his desire for them was to trust in his provision. And yet we see in later chapters that some families went out or individuals went out and immediately gathered more And the next day, they find the manna, and when they wake up, thinking, ooh, I've still got, I don't have to get up early. I got my manna here already. I got it yesterday. And they get up, and they find it full of worms and stinking. It's completely inedible, completely and totally. But then, on the sixth day of the week, the day before the Sabbath, they were to gather twice what they need. And manna gathered on the sixth day, last two days, so that the Sabbath can be observed and no one has to work for their provisions. Can you imagine seeing God's miraculous hand in front of you day after day after day? And then week after week on the Sabbath, the same stuff that won't last overnight without starting to stink and be inedible, all of a sudden lasts two days. And why? Because God said it would. Because God caused it to be that for his purposes, that they might have a Sabbath. He said, this day, the seventh day, is one that you give to me entirely. I don't even want you having to work for your provisions. And so he provided for them as he had done every other day, the manna in the morning. And yet somehow between the sixth and seventh day, by God's hand alone, the manna lasted two days. It would not any other day of the week, but it did that day a completely miraculous provision. Can you imagine getting up every morning and finding whatever it is you want, whatever it is you need on your doorstep? And it's just enough for a day. And then you get to Saturday, as we now do it. Then you get to Saturday, and you realize that you've got enough there for two days so that you don't have to go scrambling around for it on the Sabbath. Sabbath doing work, God set the Sabbath aside for himself and for man to worship him. And even with this miraculous provision, he didn't say, well, we're going to take a little break from that. There's just going to be manna every day. You can get it, then you can worship. He says, I'm going to make sure the manna lasts twice as long. That's just stunning to me. They they would hold it overnight any other night of the week, and it would be stinking and full of worms. Yet on the sixth and seventh day, it lasted another miraculous provision from God's hand that they witnessed, they viewed day after day after day for 40 years and still they doubted, and still they grumbled. Why does God handle the rules of manna this way? As I've said to you, it's not a trap. It's a demonstration of who God is and who we are. What is the ultimate point? in God handling and giving out the rules of manna in this way. in the Old Testament we see in passage after passage after passage, that things happen in this sort of sequence. God makes a promise to his people, which is also followed by a command that they're to rely on his promise alone. Then a statement of how their obedience will be shown and rewarded. And time after time we see the nation of Israel and its people fail in their obedience to God. Is God just beating them up? Is He just giving them these rules so that uh, He can say—so that they can break them and He can go, see, I'm God and you're not, which is true. But the answer again is no. That's not what He was doing. He is showing again who He is and who we are. Over and over in the Old Testament, when these happen, we see two huge themes laid out. Now, we see far more than two, but I'm just going to highlight two right now. We see two huge themes laid out. And the first is that God, as Isaiah put it, is holy, holy, holy. Now, whenever someone, some word, attribute, is repeated three times, it's like the holiest, most holy, holy there could ever be holy. Okay? It's like, wow, holy. It's like huge holy. So Isaiah calls God holy, holy, holy. He's the transcendent and eminent creator, savior and sustainer of the world and of the people he created for his own pleasure. That's what holy, holy, holy means. He's transcendent in that he's above it all. He's imminent in that he is here with us every moment of every day. Until the end of time God time and again, God shows who He is and demands that we live up to His standards for us. The second theme is that we see God's people fail at living up to even the smallest or lowest of his standards, time after time after time. The entire. Old Testament shows how holy and loving and gracious and merciful God is, and how utterly short of his standard we fall as humans. In other words, God writes the story in large print of how we are not worthy of him and his love. So, since he has set his love on us, he must send one who is able to meet all the standards God has set to meet the standards for us. Then submit himself to a death he didn't deserve in order to pay the price for our disobedience. That's what's happening. That's the story that we see going on in these brief five verses. And in these five verses, we see the gospel laid out for us in unmistakable, in unmistakable imagery. God fills our deepest needs, not necessarily our desires. God fills our deepest need, our need for relationship with him, our need for some for daily bread, our need for him when we least deserve him. And so he sent the bread from heaven, the manna, and he sent the meat in the evening. And for us, as well as for them, he sent Jesus to meet our deepest need. Our deepest need is not what we wear or what we eat or what we think or what we do or what kind of car we drive or what kind of job we have or anything like that. That's not our deepest need. Our deepest need is for a relationship with God, our Creator. Our deepest need is for a relationship not only with God, our Creator, but with His people too, our brothers and sisters here on this earth. Our deepest need is for communion and fellowship with them. Our deepest need is to understand that God is that transcendent Holy, holy, holy God, but yet in his eminence, his presence with us, he gives us the gifts we need to be with him for eternity. That's our deepest need. That's why when I read the passage out of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm completely misunderstanding and I'm thinking about my wants and desires rather than my needs. That's why I'm being arrogant and sort of dismissive when that passage sort of grinds on me a little bit. I'm not realizing that God is speaking to my needs, not my desires. And in this passage, he demonstrates for us that he cared precisely and lovingly and graciously and mercifully for the needs of his people, the need to be able to survive in the desert. There's not a lot of food sources in most deserts. I know today we've got people like Bear Grylls that can probably point out that we're wrong about that. He could probably live out there all he wanted, but I can't. I doubt many of you can, maybe there's some of you here who are real desert warriors, you know what I mean? You know how to go out there and live, but these people didn't, they didn't know what to do. They had lived in civilization, if you will, or a rough facsimile of it, for hundreds of years, they'd been told what to do every day of every year for generations. And they did it, and they did it because they didn't know anything else. And during that time, many of them even forgot God and the great things that he did for their nation in the past. Many times in Scripture, we see psalms, uh, and usually it's, it's in song form, either in the psalms or in another book. We'll see the people of Israel, or at least some of the authors, the psalmists and things like that, write a account after account of what God all God has done before them up till now. Why do they do that? Why do they sing about all the things that God has done up till now? They'll sing about thousands of years of God's grace and mercy to them. Why do they do that? They do it because they know that God does not change and they know that if he's done all of those things for all of these hundreds or even a couple thousand years for them, that he will continue to be so. It's a faith builder to look back and see what he has done, because as he has been, so he will be toward his people. There's the comfort. We look back and we see the manna in the desert, and we say, what does that mean to us? And the straight answer is, what it means is that God will provide you manna in the day and the time and the place of your need. Maybe not your want but in the day and time and place of your need. As he has done, so he will do. As he has been, so he will be. He is the God who loves his creation. And he has made a plan from before the beginning of time to A, show his people who he is and who they are, and then to provide a savior for them, meeting their deepest needs meeting their eternal needs. You see, the people of the Old Testament, we don't say this enough, I think Stacy does, but at times we don't hear this enough. You see, the people of the Old Testament are saved by faith, just like people of the New Testament. They, they look at God and his great acts of salvation, physical, mostly, amongst them, as in the provision of manna. They look at his provision for them over the hundreds and, like I said, even a couple of thousand years, and they know that they can have faith that God will provide for their shortcomings. So, they believed in Christ Jesus prospectively. They they were able to look at the sacrificial system. They were able to look at all these other things that God did and say, God will save us. We have faith in him. It says in Genesis that Abraham— trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness which is exactly how our faith works Is we have faith in Christ Jesus we are clothed in his righteousness according to one phrase by Paul, the apostle Paul we are clothed in Christ's righteousness so when God looks down he doesn't see our sinfulness he sees Christ's righteousness covering us that's what our need is is for that to happen And God provides for it. So, people in the Old Testament looked forward and believed that God would do something in time and space to save them. We get the benefit of looking back in history and seeing Christ Jesus come to this earth and live a perfect life and never sin and yet die painfully for things that he didn't do but for the things that we do. By not sinning, Christ didn't earn death. And when he went to his death anyway, having not earned it, he opened himself up to pay the price for all the sins of all those who would believe in him over the millennia, past, present, and future. And he did so. And he met our deepest needs. He was and is our manna laid out for us in these verses and all through scripture, both old and old and new testament the people grumble the people of israel grumble and disbelieve and then god has mercy and provides them with complete sustenance this is exactly the picture of what he's done for his people eternally in the bread from heaven jesus himself As I said, God had this plan from the beginning of creation. He demonstrates the first part of the gospel equation in the sinfulness of his people, then carries out the second part of the equation by qualifying them for eternal life in his presence through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's very simple, really, and quite elegant in its planning and in its implementation. We come to this table week after week. I got to tell you something. That the thing I missed the most when we weren't able to come to church because of the pandemic. I missed seeing all of y'all. I miss seeing Stacy and Aaron and, and all the rest. <clears throat> but what I really missed and felt most deeply was communion. I said to my wife several times, Stacy, I said, I can't wait until we can get together and take communion again. I hope that it never becomes rote practice for us, a rote habit for us each week, but rather a time of awe and wonder every week. I've got to tell you that the single thing I missed the most was communion. This is a time when we come to this table, as we're getting ready to do right now, this is a time when we not only get to hear, but we get to see and touch and taste the gospel story and God's gospel love for us. When you handle these elements, you're handling grace. You're handling gospel. It's that apparent to our senses when we come to this table. We get to see the bread and partake of it. We get to see the juice or wine that represents the blood of Christ and partake of that so we can smell it, and taste it, touch it, see it in a way we, we don't do the rest of the week really. And so I urge you to view this table not as something that is just a habit that we have, but as something that is a beautiful, meaningful, and necessary encounter with God each week. As we come to this table— We understand several things. This table has been declared in Scripture as God's table for His people, okay? He doesn't say this is a Presbyterian table or a Baptist table or Methodist or whatever. This is a table for God's people, those who believe in Him, those who have trusted Him for eternal life and for their salvation. And so we—I open this table for you right now, and I say to you, this is not— Uh, A music city, a music row table, this is God's table. And this is not any particular denominational table. This is a table for God's people. If, for some reason, you have not yet come to a complete conclusion on your relationship with God or on on how you stand there— I would urge you to not come to this table or to not partake of the elements and to consider during the time when the rest of us are taking them uh, what it is you have questions about or what it is you'd like to ask. And if there's any of you out there like that and you want to ask questions, find me, find many of these people that you see up here in front of you and ask them a question. Find David Siambor who did the—, uh, who did the uh, there he is back there. That did the uh, all the stuff prior to, to to the to the sermon. Ask David; he'll give you a good response. And so we welcome you to this table, in the name of Jesus Christ. We're doing communion now in a way that's a little bit different from the way we like to do it. We often like to do it um, by having people come forward and so forth and so on. Those of you who've been here we're here when the pandemic before the pandemic started we'll remember how we did it and hopefully someday we'll get back to that where we come forward and partake of this together but right now we're going to be taking uh, we're going to be taking it in our seats where we are you'll find in your bulletin a responsive reading it's a series of questions and you give the answers let's do that together right now and i pray that you will listen to and connect with these responses as we go through them.